Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast, Connecting the Dots. I'm Dave Novak, a director here at Stiefel's Think Tank Group. We do bespoke data-driven analysis for clients of the firm, focused on measuring and unpacking change, and we use this forum for a deeper exploration of our analysis. Today, we're going to be digging into freight and transportation. We're going to talk reshoring, inventory levels, freight volumes, modal shifts, and more. We've got the perfect guest to discuss this, Mike Bowdendistel, head of intermodal at Freight Waves, the leading provider of global supply chain market intelligence. Prior to joining Freight Waves in 2019, Mike was vice president of equity research here at Stiefel, covering rail and trucking. Mike, I want to welcome you to the podcast and tell us a little bit about Freight Waves and what you do. Sure. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me, uh, Dave. Uh, so Freight Waves um, is a company I joined about four years ago after leaving Stiefel. And Freight Waves is the best way to describe it to a finance audience. It's the the Bloomberg of freight. So it's a company that has these data products. Some of those we're, we're giving to, to customers via API. Others, it's through a, an interface on your desktop, similar to almost a Bloomberg terminal, but it would be right within your, your, your web browser. And so we're providing, um, you know, all this data in um, near real time. So high frequency data that gets updated, um, you know, every day on the freight transportation uh, industry. And it's uh, supported by a very large media uh, company, um, which is FreightWaves.com, which includes about 50 articles a day and about a dozen different podcasts. So I do some of both you know, support the, the data customers and, and sales and help data engineering with all the intermodal data and, and also contribute on uh, the, the media side. Got it. Uh, for, for the benefit of our listeners, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about some of the proprietary data offerings? Are these, you know, data feeds, data series, indices that you're creating? Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So we're getting data from huge number of suppliers. Uh, really, the categories are truckload, ocean, and intermodal, uh, rail intermodal. Those are sort of the three primary categories. On the truckload side, our flagship data offering has to do with tenders, which a tender is a re- an electronic request to move a load. So those would come from a big, you know, shipper. Think General Mills, um, you know, General Motors, Ford, et cetera, that they are requesting a trucking company to pick up and move a load. Those are electronically tendered. So we're tracking the volume of those tenders and then also how often those tenders are rejected, which is an indicator that there's tightness in truckload capacity. And it's really, we found that the, the, the tender rejections will lead a change in spot rates and the spot rates will lead changes in contract rates. And so like when I was at, at Stiefel, the clients, um, you know, particularly the hedge fund clients would really track those those spot rates because that's ultimately what's going to lead is a leading indicator for the contract rates that the, the publicly traded companies um, really rely on. Well, the tender rejections, we think, lead those those spot rates. So there's a lot that has to do with the, the truckload side of the business. Uh, there's also a lot on the ocean side, including um, similar to truckload, I mean, it's kind of like ocean tenders where we're we're tracking um, ocean volume at the point of origin. And so that's oftentimes China. And so that is a leading indicator for the freight that's coming into this country by several weeks. And so that gives you an early look at what to expect in the downstream transportation uh, markets in the coming months. And then we also have data on rail intermodal where we're tracking intermodal containers in a great deal of granularity on a daily uh, basis, which 
you know, shippers in particular find helpful to see if, um, you know, there's density in the lanes that they're running in and uh, how service levels are, if those are increasing, it tends to, to suggest that other shippers are finding value in uh, rail intermodal. All right. Um, that's a lot to dive into. Um, and I want to get to all that. Um, but first, I want to ask about some of the big changes that have been occurring uh, within rail and transportation since the pandemic. And then maybe we can kind of shift gears and talk about the current state of transportation uh, more broadly and what that might mean for the overall economy. Uh, one of the investment themes within industrials that we've monitored at Think Tank is reshoring. And much of the recent reshoring efforts have been concentrated in semiconductors and batteries, spurred by the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act with the incentives for you know, battery production in North America and the sourcing of raw materials for that in, in North America. So this has been a, a, a nice tailwind to supply chain broadly for, for the past two years. What are you seeing at this point on the reshoring front? Are you still seeing that tailwind or is it starting to fade? And I'll throw nearshoring into that as well. Is this Does this still present a big opportunity? I think it's been a big topic for the past 10 or 15 years uh, with the increasing capabilities and automation. It got to be even a bigger deal during the pandemic when we sort of woke up and realized that we're completely dependent on China for certain things, including um, certain mission critical things like medical devices, pharmaceuticals. And so it, during the worst of the pandemic, it got to be a you know huge issue for, for those reasons and just the fact that it was difficult to get anything into the country, all the back backlogs at, at the ports, um, you know, difficulty getting things out of China when they shut things down, uh, et cetera. I do think that um, that tailwind has tailed off a little bit. Like you suggested, a lot of it has been propped up by some of these governmental uh, initiatives. Um, you know, one of the w ways I get information on this um, that I would suggest readers check out is um, the, the Reshoring Institute. Um, there's a, a person there, Rosemary Coates, who is a regular on freight waves, really has a lot of good information on this topic. And one of the things I learned uh, from her is, is they went through and evaluated the, the labor costs at a variety of different countries. They found that China is kind of in the middle of the, of the pack, and there's actually some lower cost countries. And, and, and one of those locations is central Mexico, where actually the labor costs are quite a bit lower than in, in northern uh, Mexico. But India is, is cheaper than, than, than China as well. Um, so there, there are some places where just the pure labor costs are cheaper than China, but where China really shines is on uh, labor costs combined with the productivity. And so, um, you know, a lot of companies would, would stick with China because of, of how productive they are. They've manufactured similar items than the, the, the manufacturer is trying to, you know, get, get produced. And so, that's kind of the the big advantage that that China has is with that with that productivity. I'm a big believer, maybe more so than in reshoring, that there's going to be a China plus one or China plus two strategy, where shippers want to diversify their supply chains, and we're seeing that with companies, you know, adding uh, manufacturing in Vietnam versus China. Just talked to a big, um, you know, company that makes uh, industrial safety uh, materials the other day, and. They decided to go to go to Vietnam instead of China. This was a company that was adding new um, you know, products, and they they felt like the quality they were getting in manufacturing in, China, in Vietnam was superior to China, even though the costs were higher. So I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, China also has a disadvantage of the the Chinese New Year, which completely shuts down everything for about two and a half weeks in, in 2024. It's going to be about from February 2nd to the to the 18th, and then they won't be back up in full production until. 
early March. So it's it's basically a full month where either the the factories are shut down completely or not running on all cylinders. And so, you know, now if you wanted to get something uh, produced before that February 2nd shutdown, you would have to have your orders in by the latest, you know, next week, depending on what the, what the item is, maybe it was even, you know, before Thanksgiving. So um, you do have to have, you know, quite a lot of lead time associated with, with, with China. But I, you know, I primarily view, um, you know, that the manufacturing question of location as, as being a diversification strategy. You also hear a lot of interest in Mexico independent of um, manufacturing just with the railroads. Uh, some of the railroads will come to us and say, we want to know what is being manufactured and where in Mexico it's being manufactured, because that's a big opportunity to move um, uh, tr- uh, intermodal containers that were previously moved over the highway and uh, you know, e- even independent of any growth in, in, in manufacturing. So that's something that's been a lot of interest in. That makes a lot of sense, um, and I'm and I'm also glad you mentioned um, the uh, reshoring initiative. They do a, a great job of tracking all of the job announcements that are associated with reshoring or foreign direct investment. You know what have you? Anything where where production is, you know, or or, or even you know um, you know production that's kept from offshoring. Um, so they they do a good job tracking that. It's a really good data resource. Um, one of the things that's related to reshoring is the the level the, the, I'm, so, I'm sorry the level of labor shortages in manufacturing. Um, the, you know these can limit how quickly and how much production can be reshored. And if you look at you know the jolts data, the wage increases, just the nominal level of employment in manufacturing, all of this continues to suggest that those labor shortages persist in manufacturing. But what about trucking and rail? What are you seeing, um, you know, on the labor situation, the uh, labor situation there that companies are facing? So rail, it was real. What was really unusual was was during the pandemic when they, after they furloughed workers, they had a hard time getting those workers back. Every other recession, they've rails have been able to furlough as many workers as they want. Then volumes pick back up again, and those people are happy to come back to work because they make more on the railroad. That didn't happen this time, and I think they were just kind of overworked. Maybe they had a little bit of a stimulus money. You know, the, there are other opportunities for employment, um, but but really, I think it was you know just the demands of the of the railroad being and having to be in more you know far away locations, longer hours. Trying the railroads doing more, um, trying to do more with less, or as the unions would say, doing less with less. So uh, the, the, I think that's a lot of workers um, were cut during the early drop in the volume in the recession, left with a bad taste in their mouth. They've had a hard time getting those, the, those employees back initially. Now the, the, the railroads have made a big push to re- recruit and retain, uh, those, those workers. And the workers got a big raise last year. So that's made it a little bit easier. I think they, now they have enough employees now, whether everyone sticks around when, uh, you have a polar vortex in Chicago and, you know, there's these difficult conditions. You have to be outside all, all the time. Uh, and when things really get hard, um, you know, that sort of remains to be seen. What also remains to be seen is when we do have a drop in rail volume that's significant, are they going to keep their word that they're not going to furlough a lot of employees, even if that makes their margins deteriorate in the near term? So balancing service levels and Wall Street's demands is a very difficult uh, you know, thing. Those, those things really are um, you know, in, in conflict. So it's a little bit of a, a wait and see. And, and rail, they have enough people for now. In in truckload, you always hear about a truckload driver shortage. Uh, you know that hasn't been an issue here lately. I mean, they have the opposite problem. There's been too too many um, 
you know, too much capacity. And, and a big part of that capacity is, is drivers and, uh, you know, available equipment for dispatch. A lot of people struck out on their own during the pandemic because the freight rates were so high that that created a tremendous amount of capacity. And the industry is still really feeling the, the impact of that overcapacity uh, to this day. Very interesting. Um, I also saw that in a, a recent piece for Freight Waves, uh, you had analyzed inventory levels uh, in the retail sector. And when we think about inventory levels in the economy, there's retail, there's wholesale, and there's manufacturing. And in some of our work, we've looked at the manufacturing side and that inventories to shipments ratio. And you had that huge spike in inventories to shipments during COVID, and you've had mm-hmm. some sort of a, a reversal um, mm-hmm. since. But that ratio remains elevated relative to, you know, the uh, pre-pandemic time. Um, So my question for you is, are we in a new normal of higher inventory levels across the economy? And if so, does any of this reflect uh, an incremental underlying shift to just in case versus just in time? Yeah, I think it varies by sector. Uh, You know, you look at that inventory sales ratio and you sort of break it down by sector and manufacturing. It is above the pre-pandemic levels in retail, it's still a little a bit below the um, the pre-pandemic levels. Uh, I think that a shift to having a little bit more inventory is one of many things that companies are doing to build some resiliency into their supply chain. Uh, I mean, some of these companies like these you know, big CPG companies, really not accustomed to having any kind of supply chain issues. And then during the during the pandemic, they had all kinds of supply chain issues. Like you know, remember Kraft Heinz saying at any given day they don't have the uh, some ingredients or some pa- piece of packaging material that they um, need. You know, on, on that day, General Mills saying that trucks aren't even you know showing up. So they're, they're doing a lot of things to uh, improve the resiliency of their supply. In manufacturing, if they're manufacturing overseas, manufacturing in, in in different countries, you know, not relying on any single suppliers diversifying their ports of entry, seeing some companies have multiple distribution centers around the country instead of relying on one centralized location. So you're seeing them, you know, build a lot of of different, um, you know, sort of methods to improve the resiliency as far as is this a new, you know, potentially a new normal of higher inventory? I mean, I think a big impact there is is e-commerce and then all the um, demands that Customers are now, um, you know, having in terms of just speed and delivery, and, and Amazon's just changed everyone's expectation for how quickly you get items. You buy something on Amazon, a lot of times you have it later that that day, and other retailers are, are making similar pushes. So now Amazon's requiring their um, Amazon Marketplace sellers, which is most of the the sales, um, it represents most of the sales to be in part of the eight regional uh, network rather than having you know one national network. You see other big retailers like Walmart really try, striving for that perfect order. So someone you know places a let's say a grocery order that they want to have it, you know exactly what they ordered, no substitutions at, at all, and it's available right away. And so those type of those type of of projects require higher higher degree of inventory because it has to be closer to the consumers to get get it there quickly and have a little bit of buffer there in case everyone orders the same thing all at once and you still have that perfect order. So I, I think. That's part of the the, the strategy, um, even though you know higher interest rates and you know some tightness in warehousing capacity does does increase the cost of carrying that inventory. That's very interesting. Thank you for that um, that context. That that's very helpful in thinking about inventory levels. Um, so um, let's shift gears a, a little bit and let's talk about current current industry trends. Um, where are freight volumes right now? Uh, what do they say about the economy and what do they say about the broader transportation cycle? 
Yeah, so freight volumes, um, you know, sort of took everyone by surprise when the when the pandemic hit. Everyone thought they'd be miserable, and instead they were um, tremendous. And then uh, in March of 2022, sort of just after the Ukraine war started, transportation volumes really fell. And uh, I think there was a lot of in response to just consumers cutting back because because they just had so much inflation in uh, in in their budgets. And really, the freight market has been loose ever since. And you know, have not seen the same degree of growth that the 4.9 or 5% GDP numbers would uh, suggest. Now, that being said, there's been a pickup the last you know couple months since since October. It's actually been a fairly strong fourth quarter, which uh sort of similar to the last question of, of sort of where our inventory is leveled now. I mean, I think to a large extent, those inventories that were way too high year ago, year and a half ago, have been right-sized. And now so you're seeing some of that replenishment where we're seeing uptick significantly in, in volumes from Ontario, California, uh, sort of the inland uh, in, inland uh, Southern California, where, which is a big warehousing district. Uh, that suggests that those inventories are being replenished a little bit closer to uh, consumers. So, so we are seeing, um, you know, just in terms of total uh, you know, tenders in the last week, uh, tenders request to to, to move a, a truckload. Um, as I said earlier, those are up about ten percent in the last week. Now they they had been down, um, you know, year over year for the previous for the first nine months of the year. So we are seeing some improvement there. It's not enough improvement to tighten up the truckload market, which is still in an overcapacity situation and um, you know most of the people i talked to in the industry are expecting that to persist for the next 12 months so it is a little bit of a longer uh, downturn in the freight cycle than is typically the case and and, and really it's because the, there was just a tremendous amount of capacity that came into the market you know in the sort of early years of the pandemic um in, in response to the really high high freight rates that makes sense um what are you seeing right now in terms of modal shifts between truck and rail? Yeah, so a lot of um, you know, right at the moment, I think there's some shift back to to, to rail from truck. If you think of the, the the competitive portion of the rail industry, it's really that domestic intermodal, which is those 53 foot containers, and the rails had certainly lost share. You know, sorry during the pandemic, like you know, JB Hunt talks about this going from. Uh, 6.7% to 5.5% uh, last few years. And that was a loss of about a million and a half loads. The rails are doing everything they can to get that back. They're being pretty aggressive on the rates. Um, you know, cutting those have heard from shippers that have not used rail intermodal that the, the, the carriers are coming to them and saying, you know, this is why you want to use rail intermodal. Uh, so, so some are, are maybe trying it for the first time, heard from a big uh, CPG company the other day that they're using more intermodal because um, the service has improved. So the, the service is probably the most critical thing. If that can be consistent, uh, consistently truckload plus a day, it makes a lot of sense to use rail intermodal. And then we're seeing the rails collaborate to uh, increase the, you know, collaborate with either with each other or having a closer relationship with the domestic intermodal companies to offer uh, intermodal service in more lanes. Um, sort of the, the big uh, thing was the JB Hunt and, and BNSF really even enhancing their already close relationship to roll out new expedited services that should be pretty indistinguishable from truckload and in um, locations that really had not been served uh, very well by rail intermodal like Phoenix, 
um, Denver, maybe Salt Lake, seeing a lot more um, collaboration on northbound lanes as well in, in response to the Kansas City um, Southern and CP uh, merger. Um, so some of the other rails are collaborating to move rail intermodal northbound through Eagle Pass, um, Texas. Well, Mike, I mean, each one of these questions that we that we just discussed could have been its own podcast. Um, but I, I want to remain respectful of your time. Um, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast today. It was it was you know a great time and really enjoyable. Uh, where can listeners go to read more of your work? Yeah, you can go to FreightWaves.com and search uh, for me. Or um, if you want to subscribe to any newsletters, uh, we can go to FreightWaves.com forward slash subscribe. I write the newsletter that's uh, the stock out, which is on CPG and uh, retail. Also host two podcasts that are available on the podcasting services. One's called the stock out, which focuses on CPG and retail. And I think my favorite one is the the people speaking rail or PSR. Had some really good guests on that one, which that focused on the rail um, industry. Those are all great resources. And I encourage listeners to to definitely check them out. All right, Mike, thanks again. Hope you enjoyed being on the podcast and uh, talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks very much.